Hello, and welcome to This is Growing Old, a podcast from the Alliance for Aging Research. My name is Sue Peshin, and I'm the president and CEO of the Alliance for Aging Research. According to a new important report from the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, the current body of evidence on dementia care does not reflect the experiences of diverse populations, including people of different races, ethnicities, ages, genders, sexual orientations, and abilities. Here to talk about this report and why it is so important is Dr. Eric Larson, a senior investigator at the Kaiser Permanente Washington Health Research Institute and chair of the committee that wrote the report. Dr. Larson, it's an honor to have you on today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Great. Well, as I mentioned, you chair a National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine committee that recently re released a report titled Meeting the Challenge of Caring for Persons with Dementia and Their Care Partners and Caregivers, A Way Forward. What was the purpose of the report and why release this report now? Well, uh, the purpose of the report was to review the evidence that had been published and uh, and the committee was to write uh, a, a comprehensive report saying what we found and what we could recommend for implementation and dissemination for caring for persons living with dementia and their carers and caregivers. And uh, the, the, you know, why now? Uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's one of these things where the need is just so great. And, and as, as people begin to realize more and more uh, how many people there are and, and some of the suffering that people and their caregivers endure, uh, it, it clearly needed to be done. And uh, part of the reason is because so much that has been written about this disease has been around the neuroscience and looking for a cure. And uh, what the committee was charged to do was to look at care. How do you care for people and do a better job caring for them, representing their personhood, respecting their values, and, uh, and dealing with them where they are, as opposed to constantly thinking for some kind of magic bullet to make this go away. Well, the report found that the current body of evidence on dementia does not reflect the experiences of diverse populations. Can you tell us why that was the case and how we can promote research that better reflects the diversity and ranges of experiences of people living with dementia? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a very important point uh, that the committee came to, and we wanted to highlight that in the report. Uh, why is is that the state of nature, if you will? It probably is not unique to our area of uh, caring for persons living with dementia. You know, we do have uh, a lot of disparities and structural racism, and there are underrepresented populations who have only recently become to be recognized. So, I think over time, what's happened is the body of research has been done in the academy. Uh, and often in the case of dementia care research, it's done in uh, centers that draw off people who work their way into a research center. And that's not the real world. And the committee knew that. And there are very few places that uh, really address the issue of 
how do we find everybody and not only uh, include them in our research, but also address the disparate conditions under which people live in our country. Uh, right. And so I think that was that was an important part of the report. And I also think that the uh, at least the NIA and most of uh, our federal funding agencies are are essentially telling researchers, you better get your act together. Yeah. And and we now uh, are always looking for ways to improve both the subjects uh, uh, that we see in our research and make sure they're representative, but also the research uh, workforce, the faculty and and staff that are part of research teams. And I'd like to think that's changing. Uh, uh, it's It's been a long road though. Yeah, yeah. I'm very glad that that was one of the focuses of the report. I think it was good to call it out. It's a good time in the moment that we're in. Uh, so it was good to see, and we wanted to to ask about that. So I, I just want to back up a little bit and ask you to talk a bit about the main findings of the report overall. And one thing we sort of noticed was there was mention of caregiver and then care partners, and wanted you to just let our listeners know what you see as the difference there. So if you could just talk about the main findings of the report and then specifically with regard to caregiver and care partner. Okay, uh, well, the main, the main findings of the report. Uh, I think one of the things that's important in the report is a, is a table that, a, that appears even before we make any recommendations, which uh, talks about principles. And there's a list of principles and those principles include uh, recognizing a person's personhood uh, I think all too often people think about uh, individuals with Alzheimer's and dementia as being not quite human. I mean, that's just not true. And so one of our first recommendations in that principles was recognizing personhood. And the second was uh, focusing on well-being. Uh, I think too many times we researchers tend to focus on what we want to know about, which may not be what our uh, subjects or their cares and caregivers want to know about. So we advocate this notion of measuring and aiming for well-being, and that well-being can be quite individualized. Uh, in terms of the in terms of the actual recommendations, there were two programs we felt had good enough evidence for implementation and dissemination, and they are the collaborative care model and uh, so-called Reach Two. And those two recommendations are in the report. And the, the, the way we uh, phrase the recommendation is important because we, we, uh, we wanted to imply that this is a continuous improvement kind of approach that you'd want to take when you institute this sort of work. Uh, care of dementia uh, persons and their carers and caregivers is complex. The disease is progressive. You know, we used to say in the early days of my career, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's disease, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's disease. So uh, that, uh, so we, we, we emphasize that. Uh, and then you, then you asked me, uh, you asked me one, one other thing and I've forgotten what that was as I kept talking. That's okay. Um, it, we, we noticed that there was mention between caregiver and care partner. Yes, of course, yeah. That was really, really an important and interesting part of the committee's work where 
part of our, our work was, you know, reading this giant report that the evidence-based practice center had done, but then we also had conversations with, with community members and, and advocacy groups. And the, the notion is that there are caregivers where the relationship is one of caregiving because that's what the person living with dementia needs. But care starts at a very early stage. And in many cases, the person is more a care partner where the, there's a, there's a bi-directional dyadic kind of relationship in which the person living with dementia and the carer are care partners, not just a caregiver uh, providing for another person who is, is dependent on that caregiver. Ah, I love that. Yeah, and it's also, I think, not infantilizing the person that has the dementia to allow them to do what they want to do for as long as they want to do it. Right. Uh, and instead of just sort of taking over because it seems like the yeah. easiest thing to do at yeah. the moment. Yeah, I love your use of the word infantilizing because I think uh, you can see this all over that, that and, and, and when you take the time to listen to a person who is affected by dementia, uh, you often realize they're so different in terms of what a person is thinking about, what a person wants, and they're able to express that. It just is a little different than the way they had the ability to express it maybe five years before they became demented. Right, right. Um, so the report found limitations with a lot of the existing evidence, and you mentioned REACH 2, um, but there were you know, notations made uh, earlier on even in the, in the earlier drafts of the report um, about limitations with even that program, um, even though it's been adopted system-wide by the Veterans Association. And I was just wondering from your perspective, why does research on non-pharmacologic interventions tend to fall short? And is there maybe a need to reconsider how these types of interventions are evaluated moving forward, different from, you know, randomized clinical trials for medical interventions, for example. Yeah, I, you're, you know, I'm, I'm supposedly speaking as the chair of this committee, but you're, I'm gonna, I want to tell you that you're asking me for some opinions, and I think uh, I'm happy to give them, but uh, I'm supposed to say. This is the committee, and this is Eric Larson, and 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 I've I've been in the field since the late '70s. So, uh, you know, this, this is a tremendously complex condition, and the situation in which people receive care is complex and uh, different. And the uh, the randomized trial and the standards for how we do randomized trials and what is convincing were developed for pharmacologic and for screening. And originally the US Preventive Services Task Force and the Canadian uh, 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 Task Force on the Periodic Health Examination sort of founded the field of, if you're gonna say something that's gonna apply to everybody, you better have really good evidence. And if somebody's not sick, uh, you better make sure 
you're not harming them. And your evidence has to be very convincing. Uh, that's really tough for non-pharmacologic uh, interventions. And, you know, so the, the committee, to some extent, confronted that by, by going beyond just the randomized trials. Uh, and we looked at uh, time series analyses and so forth. But my own personal opinion is you have to develop a kind of weight of evidence mm -hmm. and using multiple methods. Uh, the impact collaboratory, uh, which is a big new effort, great effort uh, funded by the NIA, is, is beginning to do that, but it's gonna rely on pragmatic, right. randomized clinical trials. And I think that uh, over time, I would hope that some of our really, really bright uh, statistical and epide epidemiologic colleagues can help us say, well, when is it convincing enough to be gold standard, even if it's not a randomized trial? And um, mm -hmm. I think we'll get there someday. And in fact, people are already uh, taking action uh, on the basis of things that may not be as good as evidence, but uh, that's why we said in the report, think about this continuous quality improvement cycle where you you uh, you make a hypothesis, you design a program, you implement it, you measure, you look to see if you're getting the results you want or if you can improve, and you're constantly trying to improve that uh, that effort. That's very well said, I think. And I mean, you know, you're very familiar. I mean, the reach evidence uh, was first studied over 30 years ago now. So right. it's been around for, it's certainly, <laughs> you know, been, been looked at for quite some time. And yeah, uh, yeah so uh, to your point, I, I think that's a very well way to put it is when is enough enough in yeah. types of interventions that are a little, you know, it's, it's a little less cut and dried than you would get with a pharmacologic. Um, so the evidence, and speaking of pharmacologics, the evidence review, this was something that the Alliance actually weighed in on uh, when the, the uh, framework was first put out for comment. Um, the evidence review didn't consider combination interventions that use both pharmacologic interventions with non-pharmacologic strategies. And this is brought up a lot um, you know, as uh, clinical development uh, uh, trials go go on with with the FDA around you know are there behavioral interventions that are also put in place and all that so considering that many people living with Alzheimer's disease take one or more medications to help manage symptoms and several medica medical treatments are under study do you think that this is an area for future exploration yeah, I think I think uh, you know my my views on that are uh, we we do need to continuously evaluate uh, not only behavioral and and other so-called management techniques, uh, but also the the drugs that people are getting and uh, uh, and in in my own view, we need to figure out ways to determine if they're helping or hurting. Yeah. And uh, there are, in geriatric research, as you know, I mean, there's lots of enthusiasm nowadays for deprescribing. And uh, and if you, you know, if you look at the preface that I wrote for this report, 
when I entered the field, we were tying people to jerry chairs. Yeah. You know, we were putting feeding tubes down people and we were essentially putting them in chemical restraints and causing them to be more demented than they needed to be or to be falling or to be incontinent. And so uh, fortunately, you know, we're doing less of that, which I would have considered harmful even then. Uh, uh, but uh, we've still got a lot more work to do. And I, I, uh, I mean, I've, I've written a book on this, uh, Enlightened Aging, it's called, but the idea is is not to always reach for the for the medication, uh, but to to ask if, if you need that medication or to ask it if it's still needed, if it's one that a person is on. And, uh, you know, I think it's an area, as you said, do we need more work? Uh, it's an easy answer. Ask a scientist that question, of course. <laughs> just 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 show me the door and I'll walk through it. But uh, it's, uh, it's really important that we do the right work. And that's why this important, this notion of personhood and well-being. Mm -hmm. When we work on these programs and or an individual person's care, always ask ourselves, what is that person's, how is that person's well-being being served? Or are we serving ourselves as caregivers? Are we making it easier for our unit to operate by whatever we're doing? Uh, and sometimes uh, that may be necessary, but by and large, the best approach is to think about that person's well-being as, as the desired outcome. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I'm a person who has a, a history of the disease in my, in my family, and um, uh, knew, my great-grandmother had um, Alzheimer's, and it was into my teens, so I remember it very well, and my mother and I helped care for her. And she had dementia-related psychosis, and there is a lot of stigma around those types of issues. Um, and there is also a lot of guilt, I think, that family members have when they're not able to talk someone out of it or direct someone out of it. So I do think that there's a balance. Um, and because of the stigma, you know, we talk a lot in dementia about cognitive issues, but we tend not to talk quite as much about the difficulties with, for the individual, to your point, as well as for caregivers and care partners um, with things like agitation and uh, psychosis, depression, that are very, very common. Um, so I hear you, um, uh, and uh, I definitely think there's a balance. So I certainly hope, and I'm glad you walked through the door, because I, I do hope to see research in the future that fuses you know, uh, the two approaches together. Because we need to understand that. We don't want an either-or situation uh, where someone's just getting medication or necessarily just getting a behavioral intervention if they maybe need something more. Um, so much of the focus of dementia research has been on individual-level interventions. Can you provide examples of community policy and broader system interventions that you think are worth exploring? Yes, I can. Uh, and they, they, there's a broad range of them. And they, and as the report says, they just haven't been studied. The one that, that came up and always comes up is the dementia 
communities in the Netherlands uh, that have been around now for quite a while? And, and uh, are they uh, a good approach for, for certain areas? How do you create a dementia community from a standpoint of, of, uh, of the needs and, 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 and uh, making sure people are safe and uh, both physically and, and from financial and other kind of exploitations? Uh, I just heard uh, in the last couple hours that there's been a bill introduced in Congress to uh, ask CMMI to figure out how do you fund in the CMS fee structure collaborative care. Yes. Now that to me is an example of a policy that that begs for good research when we think about implementing that. And uh, I don't know what Congress is going to do with the bill, and I haven't even had a chance to see it. I've just heard about it. Uh, but those are the kind of examples of things that I think we haven't studied enough. And if we do, we'll probably advance the field and, and our ability, this, this way forward that the committee talked about. So the CDC and others have projected that the number of people with Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia is going to double by 2060, especially among minority populations. How do you think we can prepare for the caregiving demands? And having been a caregiver yourself, do you have any advice to people who may be in that position one day? It's a it's a big question. You know, it's 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 been one of those questions that has been around for a long time. I was on the OTA committee that led to the NIA advancing Alzheimer's disease as it's you know that's that's where this lives in NIH. Uh, one of our reports said in in the 80s that minority uh, ethnic communities are the are the fastest growing parts of the population and now 30 years it's it's the same mm -hmm. so uh you know i think we we just need to be a lot more inclusive uh, uh about our our research teams and caregiving teams and uh, uh and 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 realize that the culture uh affects how people experience dementia and how people are able to care for persons living with dementia or provide care as partners or as caregivers and uh, and uh, embrace, if you will, the diversity as opposed to this reductionist nature of science is always to try to, you know, kind of harmonize as much as possible. It will be diverse and we should we should basically uh, basically realize that. Um, and the, uh, in terms of, uh, being a caregiver yourself or being, uh, you know, you know, I, my wife and I, re we recently redid our durable powers and this, that, and the other thing. I'm 74 years old, so I'm entering that golden age. I've not already entered it. Um, and I, 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 I would, I would, uh, begin to learn about the disease learn about the best way to care for the disease and also put yourself in the position of that person who you're caring for or you're a care partner with and and 
try to know what that person would want. You know, what would be a person's goal for care or well-being and focus on that and the skills you need to achieve that. So here's a question that we ask all of our guests. When when you were a kid, what did you imagine growing older would be like? Uh, you know, I, 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 I knew what I wanted to grow older to be like. And uh, I had a, uh, I'm a Norwegian uh, American and, and my grandfather was uh, lived in another state on on a family ranch, but uh, I, you know, I would I would have liked to have been like my grandfather. Uh, he, you know, lived on the ranch, liked to ski. Uh, you know, would would hook up a tractor motor to create a, a rope tow and to go skiing. And eventually, he would go to an area and and he skied until he became uh, too blind. To ski you know so when i think about uh growing old uh, in in an aspirational sense i would just like to stay uh, as active and engaged as my grandfather did uh, and yet at the end you know he the best he could do would be to sit in his living room and just feel the sunshine you know mm-hmm. and that's also uh something i could imagine happening to me as i grow old all right well, what do you enjoy most about growing older now? Oh, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I, I, the pandemic has has made me really enjoy that I have a loving wife and that, that we could be partners in such close proximity for so long, uh, but also... Uh, my children, uh, our children, uh, between the two of us, we have six, and we now have nine grandchildren. We have two little ones born during the pandemic. We saw the last one this past weekend when we finally got on an airplane, and you know those are those are really enjoyable things. You know, both uh, you know staying the same in terms of intimate relationships, and also seeing the change that happens with. Uh, with people growing up. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure today. Yeah, and thank you. Thank you for having me. And if I could say a couple of thank yous myself, not just to you, but to the members of the the committee uh, for the National Academy and the staff that wrote the report, and also to the research subjects that have been part of our research here in Seattle for all these decades, because we wouldn't have learned anything if it weren't the, the fact that people do participate in research and, and want to give give to others by, by being research participants. Lovely, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to This Is Growing Old today. Our theme song is City Sunshine by Kevin McLeod. Props to Kevin McLeod for City Sunshine. Please stay tuned for new episodes every other Wednesday. And please rate and review us if you're enjoying the show. Thanks for listening to This Is Growing Old and have a great day.